Good morning. Welcome to this week's The New PL Deep Discussion. I'm Paul, host of The New PL. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We've got just five weeks to go to the official launch of the new PL Global Leadership Network. A network I believe that will grow to become an influential community of innovative leaders, disruptors, thinkers, and pioneers of purpose. And we'll be officially opening up foundation membership later this month. And as part of that, we'll have a very special offer for all of our new PL listeners. So you can keep listening to the podcast for updates or just email me at Paul at Principles and Leadership to find out more. And we're also looking for foundation sponsors for the new PL Global Leadership Network. So if you think your values align, and this might be something you and your business might like to get involved with, again, just email me at Paul at Principles and Leadership.com. This week's guest is the awesome John Oswald, a business design pioneer with a passionate commitment to sustainability. John is the European Managing Director of Accenture Interactive's new Song Sustainability Studio, which aims to make sustainability relevant and actionable to everyone by understanding the human factors behind sustainability choices and then helping companies and communities use this to improve production, products, and communication. So, John, a very warm welcome to the new PL. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks very much, Paul. Happy to be here. It's my pleasure. Um, perhaps if we just start with you giving listeners a quick introduction to you, what you do, and who you do it for. Sure. So, um, I'm John, obviously, and I lead our sustainability efforts within the digital and creative services part of Accenture. It's called Accenture Song, and it's effectively the biggest integrated digital communications agency in the world. Um, but, you know, grandiosity aside, uh, the sustainability mission that we're on here is a particularly interesting one, simply because it's the human aspect of sustainability. It's how we reach people. It's mm -hmm. how we create better products, services, and experiences. It's thinking of sustainability as, dare I say, a, a growth opportunity. I know that term is problematic. Yeah rather than a compliance opportunity, if you see what I mean. So anyway, that's that's what I that's what I do. I look after our our, our Europe part of the part of the world. And as such I love the team of colleagues in the UK, but in many, many other places too. So before we got on to the the conversation around the communication of sustainability itself and the narrative that sits around it, why is it called song? Good question. It's it's a bit dissonant with with how you might think of a huge global IT and management consultancy, um, because you know the rest of the business is consulting, technology, outsourcing. Yes. Song. Okay. All right. Good. Basically, it's a sort of homage to the thing. One of the things that makes us the most human is the ability to share stories mm -hmm. in song. You know, it, it's what it's what brings us all together. We've been doing it for millennia. It's kind of interesting. The, the way I sort of internalize it is for the longest time, we, we've been in this quite techno-utopian, techno-futuristic, techno-future deterministic frame of reference where, you know, the common phrase is in the future when, mm -hmm. hint, always run a mile when everybody says in the future when. It's not true. <laughs> so 
Accenture rebranded in 2000 as Accenture from Anderson Consulting. And it was a, yes. it was a big, it was a huge song and dance at the time, no pun intended. <laughs> and rightly so, it was a big, big rebrand. Uh, but it was it was quite masculine. It's quite an aggressive sort of accent on the future. It's a techno-determinist sort of a thing. And when we rebranded a song, suddenly you just felt everything calmed down a little bit. Right. Mm-hmm. Trying to We're trying to find what is human about this whole thing. And our bit of the company really focuses on everything to do with customer or you know, human. Um, so that's really what it's trying to do. And it's also a sort of a metaphor for people coming together. I mean, um, the creative bit of Accenture has been built through through many, many acquisitions. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, but we never wanted to be a holding company. Yeah. Because that just pits people against each other. So song is also a little bit of an internal organizational metaphor for let's do stuff together, please, rather than sort of um, fight with each other for scarce resources or something. So that's, that's the origin of it. So in societal cultures, songs, as you said, they are the, the essence of storytelling, the, the oral storytelling tradition and quite essential to the understanding of what it means to belong to that culture, to be part of that culture, to what to the values that underpin it. What are the values that underpin song within Accenture? So you'll have Accenture's values, but what what defines song? What are the lyrics? <laughs> the, the lyrics are, and I kind of love this actually, it's uh, David Droger, our, um, our, our CEO and chairman is a is a, a clever chap and his words that he uses and it's very easy to internalize these see solve simplify mm-hmm. see try and see around corners figure out what's going on use intelligence use ai use analytics use ethnography but whatever happens try and see what's really happening and then you can kind of geek out a little bit on the solving because what consultancies are really good at um it's it's fixing for a problem, you know, perceived or or real, and it's very easy to get carried away with that. I mean, we love to solve things, but the real magic comes with simplifying it, so mm-hmm. that millions of people actually understand what you're talking about. So it applies to advertising, but it applies to products, innovation of any sort, and it also applies to technology. Really, if you make technology simple, then people will use it and it will have societal benefit. If you don't, nobody uses it or it becomes the preserve of the of the elite or whatever. So see, solve, simplify. Kind of nice, huh? It is. So I'd like to explore a little bit more around that because to see, to solve, to simplify requires curiosity because yes. you need curiosity not just to see what's in front of you but to, to see what could be. And one of my big bugbears or a lot of the things that I talk about at the new PL is about the diminishing of curiosity that we have in a more technologically-led world or a more algorithmically-led world, if you like, um, and the impact that is having on our desire to to seek natural inquiry, to seek knowledge rather than just being passively fed to us. What is it that you do within Song or within Accenture more broadly to enable that curiosity to flourish, to ensure that you can see, solve, and simplify with far more diverse and creative input into that process. I love that as a question. I've also had a long-standing feeling that that curiosity is probably what will save us. <laughs> and uh, I'm not alone in this, actually. Um, yeah. a, a fantastic uh, pair of colleagues of mine, Mark Curtis and Olaf Schiebergsen, who initially founded the agency Fjord, 
digital right. design agency, which is now part of. And so, anyway, for for the longest time, and still is, they, they, they would they would say that's the the key thing that they look for in people that we bring into the business is curiosity, which, you know, it it manifests itself in many ways. Uh, it comes off, it comes across as empathy in mm-hmm. certain contexts because if you're curious about other people you'll be curious about context yeah and context is the is the real key of, of so many things you understand why something's happening and in what circumstances you can sort of do something about it manifests itself also in in the inquisitiveness that goes into exploring potential means to solve for the sort of thing that you find if you're curious and empathetic so if you're finding an interesting need out there in society somewhere, you've got to be very curious to find a way of, of dealing with it. Um, you've got to temper curiosity sometimes with the willingness to be pragmatic enough to get something done. Yes, Curiosity can be a break on creativity as well as a massive force for creativity. So if you're too curious, you'll always end up thinking of something new and different and yep. you'll never sort of follow through on something. But... You know, if you sort of combine curiosity with a good dose of, yeah, best words, pragmatism, really, um, then then I think you're probably. F- and you know, look, um, when you get into sustainability, there's there's enough needs, problems, aspects of what's going on around us that require intense curiosity to to sort of get to the bottom of and and find root causes and even the root causes of the root causes. It's, it's massively important. So we, you know, um, I, I would say this, it's, uh, you know, speaking on behalf of a large company here, but we do look for that in, in everybody we interview and bring into the, the business. We look for it in the partners that we work with and so on. That, that's an easy thing to say, but you, you know what it is when you see it. Yes. And you can spot a, a, a curious team when it's, when, it's, when it's doing good stuff. We do this quite interesting thing, actually. Um. It's, it's a Gallup tool with that that finds the sort of five keywords that sort of summarize your your own personal makeup. It's been, it's been quite a fascinating sort of organizational discovery because once, and, you know, people even put these in their email signatures. It's quite, it's quite cool. Because yeah. you, can, you can look at a whole team and, and figure out what balances what. And, and it's, it's a little heuristic to, to building better teams and understanding your own motivations as well, actually. I mean, my, my number one is um, weirdly interconnectedness, which mm-hmm. is curious in itself. Yeah. Um, but it summarizes quite well my own kind of personal, you know, things that make me vibe. You said at the beginning of that conversation, context, yeah, empathy you touched on, and then you said context. It's, again, something that I think an awful lot about in, in the in the context of leadership because we're we're increasingly in a world where we're encouraged to see things without context, particularly on social media, or to take things at safe value, at face value, and react to that. How do you can you build a process to encourage context in the framework of curiosity, or is that something that has to come innately and naturally within someone? It's something that you innately. I don't know innately. Hmm. I've, I have the benefit, and many of my colleagues do, of uh, considerable years of education and mm-hmm. and inquiry and, and understanding where information comes from. So 
I speak from a position of uh, considerable privilege here. Um, but I often feel that the face value thing is is so deeply troubling. Uh, information out of context. It's the classic. It's the classic report when you interview a politician, isn't it? Like, are you yes. taking my words out of context? Sure, maybe we are. <laughs> um, but it shows up in so many in so many ways. The, the information we consume, the, the questions we ask, the perception we have of each other, the social and economic backgrounds we bring with us wherever we go. It's all context. We are context. Humans are context. <laughs> um, maybe that's maybe that's too woolly for for a lot of people who want to be a lot more decisive about things um, and make change because, well, you know, we can and why not? I just think I'm going to make a very big point here, but with great scale comes great responsibility, mm-hmm. and we've been. As a society and as a global, particularly Western, Northern society, we've been guided by the principles of liberty and free speech and all the rest of it for a very, very long time. Noble. Mm-hmm. And it's made us uh, a very, very successful species in many ways. It's also made us an extremely unequal and extremely dangerous species. Yeah. And, and so when I say we are context, I think what I'm getting at is there are so many of us now we've made so many so many changes and we have made so much change around us that I don't think we can any longer take for granted ideas of individual liberty and ideas of complete freedom because it's not you know, it's the old philosophical debate of freedom to and freedom from yes and context is I think one of those things that tempers our, our, our innate human desire to be free and to do what we want because it reminds us that other people are there too there's a there's a planet here as well there is mm-hmm. nature around us that is also context we can't just sort of do what we want um because if we did well we have done and look what has got us <laughs> um now if anybody <laughs> people listening to this might think um fantastic uh he's like some sort of proto-communist or something. Um, that's not where I'm going with this. It's just with great scale comes great responsibility. And that requires us to collaborate and understand context and use it to make decisions. Be curious, temper it with context and so on. You see where I'm going? I do. I do. And there's perhaps no bigger scale or responsibility in front of us than the environmental crisis, which is um, taps into the sustainability element of your role uh, at Accenture, at Song at least. And that is something that is often bereft of context um, or certainly misunderstanding and misinformation um, around it. And I wondered when you are, from your perspective, from the creative and marketing side or communication side, how do we rebuild that, that narrative around sustainability? I know when I've read... A lot of the research that you guys have produced at Accenture, and it talks about you know moving away from nudge um, because it doesn't work anymore. There's you know distrust in politics. How do we how do we reframe the narrative, in, in the words of Accenture, from belief to moving it into something where people are actively engaged in it rather than being passively nudged towards it? I think problem number one in the history of 
us trying to if infuse sustainability into human endeavor problem number one is we've we've kind of missed a few steps mm-hmm. we've been trying to get people to you know quotes change behaviors um, be conscious of the environmental footprint and make sustainable choices for decades we've been trying to raise awareness of the crisis um, um, that is happening around us and, and nothing quite seems to stick and yeah. when you talk to sustainability professionals who've been doing this a lot longer than i have there, there's nothing new under the sun we, we've, we've tried everything we've literally tried everything <laughs> and yet here we are there have been some interesting very big tipping points not the big environmental tipping points there is catastrophic and and horrifying to think about but tipping points in terms of human understanding and societal understanding and and that's good we've 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 seen a a lot happen but we're we're still in the same kind of situation often we're not we're not seeing mass as it were adoption of sustainability or whatever and and i think it's largely down to the fact that we've kind of misunderstood the human element of it all Mm -hmm. now Sustainability is one of those things. It's a, it's a it's a very very big global problem, which is very very locally felt, or not felt crucially. Yes, you don't really believe it until it's right here. And in some regions of the world, it's everything to do with water. In other regions of the world, it's got everything to do with fire. Other regions of the world, it's got everything to do with sea levels. Mm-hmm. Everybody's experiencing what's happening around us in a very different way. Context. Yeah? <laughs> Now, when you when organizations try to speak to people, speak to us as consumers about sustainability, they're making some massive assumptions. Yes. A, that we actually care. B, that we are willing to change everything. And C, that we are going to take direction from organizations. Now, mm-hmm. people tend not to work that way. <laughs> surprise, surprise. So there's a bit of a let's call it a relevancy gap between what organizations say and do and and how regular people live their lives. And if you don't get over that relevancy gap, you've got a bit of a problem. Now, interestingly, there's not really, in in many cultures of the world, there's not really an idea, a concept of sustainability in their language. Right. It's the wonderful thing about coming from a bit of a linguistics background. you, You sort of geek out on language. But anyway... You know, even you know, many, many European languages don't really have a word for sustainability, for example. So so talking about it in the terms that we do is sometimes extremely Anglo-centric, US, UK, English-centric, which is already a barrier for billions of people around the world. If, if the very concept you're trying to get across is, is anchored in English words, then it's already distant from the, the culture in which you're trying to reach. The culture which you're trying to reach, rather. So, oh, and point two of that is uh, sustainability has come to mean and connote some some very specific things, like like people just go straight to solar panels, renewables, wind turbines, recycling, images of people with plants growing out of their hands. Um, you know, you know the sort of corporate images you get of you know biophilia and all that stuff. So it's become a it's become a meme, not not in the sort of humorous sense, but it's become a, sh- a shorthand for a series of behaviours which, in themselves, are limiting mm-hmm. the scope of what actually needs to happen. Anyway, what do you do about it? 
Well, what you do discover when you talk to people about everyday life, and in the research that we did here, we, we deliberately didn't talk about sustainability for the first like three months of this massive study we did across right. eight countries. You know, and you talk to people about, about their daily lives, you discover they're motivated by all sorts of stuff. And people are innately a lot more, quotes sustainable than we might think, which is great, actually. We just got to tap into it. Mm -hmm. so it's really the, the quite deep-seated human values that make us who we are that drive change. It's not some organization saying, buy this product, it's sustainable. You know? So actually, the best way to sort of reach people is, understanding what those, is to understand what those motivating factors really are. Is it a sense of self-fulfillment? You want to do something to find your place in the world? Is it a feeling of openness? Like there's a major life event happening in, in, within, your, within your family or something. And because of that, you're kind of open to new experiences. Or, you know, there's been a major thing just happened to you and it's time to think differently. Is it your own sense of resourcefulness? You, you kind of innately want to keep something for longer you you, you mm -hmm. cherish an object you cherish an environment around you. You, you 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 cherish your front doorstep you know whatever happens to be anyway if we tap into those things we're more likely to find that people will make quotes sustainable choices the trick is to just not necessarily use the the baggage and the language that we built around sustainability we can get to the same outcome and probably a better outcome by reaching more people through the, the values that are motivating. That's our that's our kind of guiding thesis here. And it's, it's borne out by a lot of um, very multimodal, very different forms of research that we've been doing. It's a really, really interesting point. And, and you touched on right at the beginning that many, many cultures, many languages perhaps don't have a, a term that defines sustainability. And then further on in that answer, you touched on something that I'd like to to mould together. And I, I'm from Aotearoa, New Zealand originally. Um, I have some Māori heritage on my mother's side. And it is quite intrinsic within Māori heritage, the relationship with the land and the, the natural and implicit and innate desire to look after the land, to protect the land. And I just wonder whether, in line with your point, whether... There has been too much imposition in too many areas of sustainability as a term rather than recognizing that it is an implicit way of thinking within many cultures. So we're trying to almost impose a term that sits above something that already exists within. And it's that disconnect that is creating almost, you know, we didn't create the problem. We were in touch with the land. The problem was created somewhere else. Now you're coming back with a term to tell us to be more sustainable when we were like that in the first place. And I think this there's almost a, I mean, it sounds like a ridiculous sort of circle, but but I do wonder at heart whether that is part of the challenge that we have a very blunt generic instrument, a term, sustainability, to try and impose on a multiplicity of cultures that already have it at the heart of their thinking, not just at the heart of their doing. It's, uh, it's beautifully articulated, Paul. Uh, so true. Um, and, you know, we've seen this firsthand. Uh, Maori culture is one excellent example of it, but we, we saw it in many other places too. And it goes back to the human values thing. Tradition, respect for the land, for your, your people, is so fundamental to so many 
things. We seem to have this superstructure that that thinks that you know, sustainability means doing new things, innovating our way mm-hmm. out of something. What if innovation was actually tradition? Yes. What if we went right back to the source? And which is why, <laughs> which is why digging into those sources is so fruitful because you, you discover what really motivates people and even in a way that they probably don't even understand. They've just grown up in a culture where it's normal to have respect for one's elders, have respect for the land around us, have respect for the traditions that have made us. You know, these are these are not retrograde atavistic things that hold us back, in spite of how the Victorians may have <laughs> may have taught us, but they are things that connect us and they are things that make us who we are. And often they are things that provide much more of a sense of equality and balance with nature, equality with ourselves and equality with non-human actors around us mm-hmm. as well. And in many cultures, of course, there aren't necessarily words for, or what's the, what's the phrase I'm looking for? Um, we, we tend to objectify things in the English language because everything that's not human is it. Yes. It's very homogenizing. It's very othering, actually, if you'll forgive the modern sounding word. And that's actually kind of, as a mental model, that's, that's a fairly disastrous way of looking at the world. It's like we yeah. are human and the rest of it's just it. And in many cultures, of course, we, we have genders for objects. Yes. Which I think at, at some sort of primal level must make you think that I am connected with these objects around me. That I'm not separate from them. I love the term, I've heard this a few times, of um, species loneliness. Right. Where we've we've become so, quote, advanced and separate from from everything around us that, you know, in our concrete and glass and and steel environment, we've we've lost touch with pretty much everything. Uh, Now, there's, there's, there's a mental health crisis happening all around us, as well as a deep-seated feeling that that our economic structures just aren't quite working, and uh, at the same time we're, we're kind of disconnected from nature. Is that a coincidence? I, I, I don't know. A lot of what you're saying as well resonates with um, I've forgotten the name of the author, but there's an absolutely terrific book, uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. Right, and and it's it's basically trying to find modern quotes scientific evidence for very very long-standing native american practice mm-hmm. belief structures and uh the, the author is actually a, a she's a scientist as well as belonging to a, a native american community and the it's all there it's all there to see actually yes modern science tends to prove quite a lot of what we kind of knew thousands of years ago and still do. Uh, absolutely terrific book. If you haven't come across it, it's, um, I must look up the name of the author. Forgive me if you're listening. I will, uh, for the listeners, I will um, put the link to the book in the notes that accompany the podcast so we can uh, we can certainly push out that book as well. Yeah. I guess one of the one of the concerns I have, or, or one of the things again, I do a lot of thinking about is how we create. 
that cultural sense of belonging, because I know lots of people are looking for some sort of community, whatever that community looks like now, um, a desire to to come back into a community, to feel a sense of belonging, to feel like they have something around them to support them. And there's two sides that that can go. You either end up in an echo chamber, which is a mm. very negative kind of society, or you end up in a in a positive society, in a community group, and and doing more for your local community, getting back engaged in that community. But clearly, that is also a step away in some shape or form from the globalization that we have created over the last 30 years. And I just wonder how we, there is inevitability, somewhat inevitability to globalization. We are where we are. We have created the world we have. And how do we square those two circles, the desire to belong to something smaller, more intimate, more in line with our with our desires and our values internally, but also still look out figuratively and literally on that world and have that expansive view that leads to context, that leads to curiosity and so on. I'd love to get your view on that from, from the research and your own personal view as well. Community and curiosity actually go hand in hand, I think. And we 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 often look on look upon globalization as being a, a, a very homogenizing force, and and it is on many levels. But it's also created platforms and communities, virtual ones sometimes, often, which give give a lot of hope actually to the the opposite of what you're suggesting. I think yes. Globalization needn't be something that rips us away from who we are and where we live and what we're part of. It can give us new avenues to make connections and find other communities. And you, you, you see this repeatedly. P people do find community in the, the, the weirdest and wonderfulest <laughs> things yeah. um, in, in, in an online world, a globalized world. And it's... Yeah, there's the, the the word over tourism is being used a lot at the moment, and I yeah. totally I totally get why. Um, we are a lot more connected in that way as well. Um, but equally, and in counterpoint to it, there's there's a lot of curiosity that's happening online and with virtual communities that find solutions to local problems mm -hmm. and, and disseminates knowledge and finds ways to help folks out um so there's there's always a sort of counterpoint to these things um and again just to just to plug another another podcast actually um uh, alex kratowski has been doing a, a podcast called the or a radio show really called the digital human for yes. years now, hundreds of episodes and it's a it's a phenomenally good exploration of the things that make us human in a in an online and an offline world Mm -hmm. and, and she's exploring really what what are the patterns in 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 digital that reflect some of the more deeper deeper seated human behaviors around us and sort of vice versa actually and, and you discover some fascinating things um so yeah globalization doesn't have to mean homogeneity it has <laughs> and well you know to your to your point yes we are where we are it's it's, it's awfully difficult to to 
reverse these things. But I think we've realized a few things along the way. Like mm-hmm. we, we've rebranded as song because we realized that humanity is kind of important. <laughs> um, I think many societies and COVID was a real wake up for a lot of people. We yeah. rediscovered many things that, that we discovered were desperately important and which had gotten forgotten a little bit in all the noise and, and busyness around us. So one, one thing I really want to explore a little bit more is I know you talk in the literature on the website and so on about human-centered sustainability. And mm-hmm. I'm always skeptical in a healthy way when I see yeah. human-centered design, human-centered customer yes. experience, because I'm trying to figure out what isn't human-centered. You know, that is the essence of what we're trying to deliver. So mm-hmm. Every time I see that, I'm always skeptical of what actually defines that. And I'd love to understand from your perspective, what is human-centered sustainability? How is it defined at Song? Well, let's 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 break that down a little bit. I, I'm also a bit skeptical about the whole human-centered design yeah. rhetoric. Um, rhetoric makes it sound like I'm being really critical. I'm, I'm not. This is fed with love. I've been in the design profession myself for a number of years. Yeah, surrounded by colleagues who who are. My, my fear is that human-centered design was actually consumer-centered design. Yes. We, we wanted to <laughs> make things that were better, more seamless, um, you know, a, a nicer experience and all that kind of stuff. And we were doing it for companies wanting to sell stuff. Now, this is a little bit like the history of design, actually. Yep. Originally, it sort of came from a desire to make products better and therefore more commercial. So it's inherently always been on the on the razor's edge between trying to do the right thing for people and sell products. It's commercial, not commercial. Anyway, where am I going with this? So human-centered design, I think, went down a path, particularly the last seven years of consumer-centered design, and it's sort of in many in many instances has become a little commoditized and has sort of lost its way a bit. Mm-hmm. However, there's, there's there's so many talented and motivated designers who try and see the world a little bit differently. And to to think of human centricity is to is to limit the scope of what a design mindset can can achieve. And there's there's more and more effort going into reframing design as something that tries to restore balance between people and planet and profit, of course. And there are ways of doing that. In fact, we built up a whole collection of tools and methods ourselves to try mm-hmm. and foster this kind of mindset of you're not just designing for a you know a rich one percent user in a in a specific locale but because that happens to be where you live. You, you've got to broaden your aperture considerably if we're going to design products and services and experiences that that fulfil people, planet, and profit. So there are techniques, and we, we've we've gone to a whole lot of effort to to sort of codify that within. Within, within within song and i think it's led us to I, I couldn't really summarize it in a pithy sentence for you and i i, I hesitate to use terms like planet-centered design and you know all that stuff because i think it it, it it just sounds a little bit too grandiose yes um, and it can be a bit immobilizing because it's like too big <laughs> but human-centered design when it comes to sustainability or human-centered sustainability is, is us trying to find ways to um, 
help organizations help people do the right mm-hmm. thing. We have, and I, you know, I, I could go into the origins of all of this, but it's probably quite well known. The whole notion of carbon footprint and making it an individual's problem is is, is fairly problematic. Because yeah. um, what can we do as individuals when we're surrounded by large organizations that have infinitely bigger mm-hmm. impacts than, than we as individuals do? Sure, we're buying their products, <laughs> but we have been sort of worked over a bit by the system to um, to get there. Um, you know, we, we often talk about it's difficult to change behavior. It's not. It's called marketing. We've been doing it for decades. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? We've just got to get out of the, the mindset of um, it being a consumerist thing. But where I'm going with this is um, most people, when you sort of get to, get to the root of it, they'll, they'll say, yeah, sure, I care, but I'm doing my best here. Um, surely companies could be producing different things surely companies could be reducing emissions somewhere else mm-hmm. um there's, there's lots that could be done and, and they're right they're absolutely right i mean yes it's 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 good to it's good to care and do all these things but sort of human-centered sustainability kind of means figuring out how we sort of change the system together around us so that we're we're never going to stop Huh. Carefully, you say this in front of you. We're never going to stop consumption, particularly. I don't think that's going to happen in the, yeah. in, the in the short to immediate term. Um, but we can at least make the the system around us better. We can re we can we can find ways to reuse, recycle, remanufacture, rent um, mm-hmm. products. We can find alternative business models here. We can look really carefully at our supply chains and think differently about how they're orchestrated. We kind of had to do that after COVID anyway, and it's taught us an awful lot. We can think differently about how we how we use waste and what waste even means. Yes. Waste as raw material for somebody else. Um, I'm talking in broad terms about circularity here. Um, anybody who knows the Alan MacArthur Foundation will know what I'm talking about here, but it's a huge part of Accenture's push in, in sustainability as well. It could lead us to think differently about how we motivate and incentivize employees yes in the workplace um how whole organizations can change how boards can be encouraged to think a little bit differently anyway that the human center sustainability idea sort of leads you down all these all these paths and actually a client of mine often says um the thing about sustainability is that you need a little bit of everything everywhere all at once yes yeah, and he said this. He said this to me when the movies, when the, that particular movie was, uh, was 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 doing the rounds. But I kind of like it. And what, one of the one of the pitfalls we sometimes fall into, like when, whenever we talk in in sustainability circles about a particular initiative or an idea, somebody in the room will always go, "Yeah, but but don't we have to do this as well?" It's like, mm-hmm. "Yeah, of course we do. Of course we do. We've got to do everything." <laughs> so we we seem to. As, as a profession, sometimes we, 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 we almost see this as being, you have to do one thing or the other. It's always an and, it's not an or. Yes. Yeah. You, you have I, to think about, you have to think about all sorts of ways to decarbonize, obviously. Um, yes, you do need to think about carbon capture. That is legit. Um, either mechanically or, or through nature. Um, it's not 
the first thing that you should probably be thinking of, but it's it's important in the mix because mm-hmm. everything has to be a mix. And I've talked about a whole lot of things there, you know, from from business model through to supply chain through to uh, waste, fuel, energy, you know, everything everywhere all at once. So when we think about everywhere all at once, mm. what what is the biggest challenge that we face in regards to sustainability or our commitment to it? Is it one of consciousness? Is it one of intention, both individual and collective, organisational? Is it one of imagination or is it one of courage? All of the above, plus the need to think in systems. Right. Talk me through that. There is a system of, I'll give you a very practical example. There's a system of mobility that we are part of. Um, it's very, very easy for us to drive. I'm talking really in our, in our economic setup here, yeah. but it's kind of the same in many places. Um, and at the moment, there, there's, a, there's obviously a push to electrify vehicles, which largely consists of replacing an internal combustion engine with a battery. That's, that's great. Um, mm-hmm. Probably we need that. But it starts to get a bit weird when you see a new supercar SUV thing being launched as three tons in weight and has a massive battery and can do not to 60 in 2.8 seconds. Yeah. Just think, are we, are we really thinking this through? Um, <laughs> anyway, I digress again. We replace a battery in a car or a, a, a combustion engine in a car with a battery. The thing is, um, how do you charge it? So you as a consumer, you've got to think about charging now mm-hmm. which means that you need to need to probably consume more power so you need to have a slightly different conversation with your energy provider do you get solar panels can you get solar panels can you get somebody to fit your solar panels because that could help with charging the car couldn't it uh what happens when you go to the service station and there's not a, an electric thingy plus it takes 20 to 30 minutes so what are you going to do so that's that's not a car maker's problem that's a that's a fuel company problem yes uh and then you get into the city and how the city works how does parking work supermarkets should they have electric vehicles charging stations in there and and actually the charging thing feels an awful lot like filling a car with fuel it's exactly the same sort of user experience except yeah. possibly slightly worse <laughs> and and not terribly accessible either it's this big heavy thing that you've got um because we're not thinking in systems we're thinking of individual companies doing things in an ecosystem that's already challenging. But the system of mobility makes you think, well, wait a minute. Cars are clearly not a great use of natural resources. And yet we've got a system now where we have to get around. Yeah. Because we typically don't work where we live and we've gotten used to the convenience of it all. But public transport, city infrastructure, rural infrastructure, dare I say, it's all part of this whole mobility thing. So you've got mm-hmm. to think in systems. You've got to think of the system of mobility and, and what it means at an individual, company, societal level. It's very easy for me to say this, but it's, it's quite hard to do in practice. There's another system around us, which is food. We've gotten used to cheap food. Yeah. And to produce cheap food is incredibly costly. And it's not covered by the price that we pay so Mm -hmm. there's a systemic problem there we're not paying for what we're using 
we're not paying for what we're wasting yes and we're we're killing a lot of animals and making a lot of animals suffer actually to 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 feed our food system quite literally uh now this isn't an anti-agriculture rant by any stretch i'm from a farming background so you know uh, I, I inherently have a lot of empathy with with the, the farming community and how it all is set up the food system though is just because there's so many of us it's just stretched to breaking point now the system needs to clearly change and i don't think we're going to move away from a, a situation where we enjoy a good steak or um you know roast pork at the weekend or whatever um if that's your cultural thing which it isn't for many people of course maybe roast lamb anyway god cultural stuff again um the thing is the, the there are better and different ways of us finding protein and so mm-hmm. therefore could we actually manufacture using the big infrastructure they build around us a lot of the protein that we actually need it may not be the most palatable thing but it could be made really palatable and if you think i'm getting into ultra processed food here kind of not actually um i'm getting into alternative proteins which are a big big phenomenon in the in the whole sector at the moment about how we just find different ways of uh, finding the food that we need the food stuffs that we need anyway both of these are sort of illustrations of thinking in systems not just an individual product being sold to an individual set of consumers it's um it's thinking differently about what the system itself could do differently that would lead us to an, a, a, a different outcome so I don't know whether there's an answer to that to this at, at this point, but is the lack of pace in our abilities? Have you used the example of the system of mobility and the the very very slow pace that charges are going in? Um, the lack of imagination in terms of where they can go into a residential space when you have two up two downs and and join houses and so on is the the lack of pace due to our inability to create new systems or because we are trying to evolve a system that doesn't fit a new kind of technology so is the problem that we're not is the problem that we're creating new systems that aren't needed we could evolve an old one or is the problem that we are evolving an old one to fit a that is not going to be fit for purpose for a new technology a new system if you like I think everything around us moves at a phenomenal pace and phenomenally slowly at the same time. Right. And that can be frustrating because we, we, we see progress in a particular kind of a way. Hey, if you take the extremely long view, we, we are a blip at the end of a time <laughs> continuum. Yeah. And so what we perceive as being slow is kind of not that slow. <laughs> true, true. That said, that said, this is our frame of reference. This is the system we've created around us. Um, in some ways, it feels like things aren't going that slowly at all. Um, and futurologists would probably tell you that y- you think everything's going to happen next year, and it doesn't. It takes 10 years. But when you get there, it's felt very natural. Yes. It's quite curious, these, these time horizon things. Um, I think a lot, though, of what holds us back is the economic system, the big, big system around us of the way companies are monitored and measured and financed and managed 
the, the shareholder economy, the the way in which country budgets are run, the the fact that our political cycles are so so short, really, mm-hmm. in comparison with the the major shifts that we need to make, all of these are quite are quite tricky phenomena. It felt at the time of COP twenty six that we were starting to see major systemic changes with with things like Mark Carney's uh, GFANS initiative brings yes. together some of the biggest financiers of the on the planet to to fund a different way of thinking. And if you ever listen to Mark Carney's um, Reese lectures, it's it's a very good listen. There's a, yeah. a lot of wisdom there. Um, so we were seeing a lot of like very big things happening. And it's not that we haven't since. I mean, you've you've seen the Inflation Reduction Act, beautifully misnamed piece of legislation. That's fantastic. <laughs> it's a great example of pragmatism, by the way. Yeah. Um, and that's one way of, of of dealing with it. And we're starting to see the effects of all that. We're, but we've also run into the horrific situation of a sovereign nation invading another, and the ripple effects of that. And the challenges to the big big system around us have been such that. You know, obviously, we're now in a situation where uh, we've still got to pay the bills here. Yeah, and yeah, so that can be. It's it's a hard thing to decouple that one. I mean, you can argue as as much as you like that you know sustainability is an opportunity to rethink, and therefore, you know, it's an opportunity to also be commercial about it and, and make money with something interesting and different and new that that has a good outcome as well as being a great product or a service or an idea. But it's very hard for people to get out of the quarterly cycle. Very hard. And I have a lot of empathy for the organizations we, we work with. You're just just trying to just knuckle down and survive and, yeah. and make sure that, you know, they don't they're not having to make really difficult social moves in their company to you know lay off whole workforces, you know, because these are the sort of stark options that that, that face us. But this is this is to illustrate the point really that the economic system we're in is not exactly conducive sometimes to the very very long term thinking that needs to happen. But it can happen really quickly. At the same time, we, we we've seen it before. We we saw it when Cape Town nearly ran out of water a few years ago. We saw it on a massive scale when uh, when, when when COVID hit. Yes, sometimes a lot of stuff is actually possible. <laughs> And um, Yuval Noah Harari has, has done a lot of thinking about this and yes. worked out the actual economic cost of, you know, decarbonization and net zero. And it's not as much as we think. Yeah. So maybe we'll get there. Um, and if it feels slow, it's just because a year feels slow to us. But generations come and they go. And uh, this is something that we talk about in my team sometimes, where we are probably going to be solving for things now that we will never see because we'll be dead. And that's okay because it, some things take longer. And that's not something to that shouldn't demotivate, shouldn't demoralize. It's just we have to be thinking of a different legacy here. Do you think that that, that last point there is, in a sense, part of the problem that we see sustainability as the problem to be solved rather than the solution to many of the problems that we have. And, and, you know, maybe one of the fundamental failures in the narrative of sustainability over the last 20 to 30 years is that, you know, the words like it's a crisis and all those other things. And I know why they're used, 
but actually it's an opportunity to sustain and grow in a positive sense. It's the solution to the problems we face rather than the challenge to the life we have. I think you may just have hit on a beautiful way to sort of not conclude the conversation, but bring it to a bit of a crescendo here. Um, I haven't really thought of it in that way before. So sustainability not as a problem to be solved, but as a solution to the problems around us. Yeah. That's a very good way of looking at the world, actually. Because um, you're right, the whole discourse is, 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 is taking the shape of we're in the shit, what do we do about it? We have massive issues. What are we going to do to resolve them? Rather than we have societal problems, etc. Thinking in sustainable ways. Yes. Is there a way out of it? Yeah, exactly. Um, mm. When I did the research for this, I noticed that you are quite an avid uh, book reviewer. And uh, so I just wanted to end on on a more personal note. I'd love to, to understand from your perspective a book you've read recently and a key point you took away from that book and how it is influencing or impacting on the work you're doing right at the moment. Wow. See, at this point, uh, anybody who reads quite a few books um, is is really scratching their head. Part, part of them is sort of thinking, oh my God, what are people going to think if I say that? Um, <laughs> or, or it's like, oh, let, let's find something that's like really profound that I read maybe three years ago. Well, I'll, I'll pretend like I read it last week. Um, <laughs> instead, I'm going to mention a text which was written in the 1930s mm-hmm. that I've come back to a lot in the last 45 years. It's not something I I read recently. It's just something that's always been in my sort of cultural environment. And it's a text called the Desiderata. And people think it's a religious text, and it sort of is, and I'm not sure it is. It's very spiritual. And <laughs> I think I first saw it in our, in our house when I was growing up, and I, and I thought it was some sort of ancient monastic thing. But like I say, it's a text written in the 1930s. And it has so many little bits of wisdom in it, which I keep coming back to. Yeah. The first line is, go placidly amid the noise and haste and remember what peace there may be in silence. Oh, I love that. And you just think, yes, need a bit of that. Go placidly amid the noise and haste. Um. And then there are other bits which say things like, you know, many fears are born of loneliness. Yes. And you just think, oh my God, yeah, that's quite, that's quite profound. Almost every line in the Desiderata makes you stop and go, well, yeah, yeah, I see where you're going with that. I'll include a link to that as well. I was, um, mm. I was watching a YouTube video the other day of uh, Frank Zappa, the old musician, um, mm. 60s and 70s, and he was talking about his experimental guitar solos, and it's something I've, I've taken his quote and put it in something quite recently. And the interviewer asked him about his guitar solos because they were never the same, and he talked about how others you know, are note perfect and they go in every night and they play that, that tune exactly. But he said, um, for me, it's a game. We have a piece of time and we get to decorate it. And I thought it's a wonderful metaphor for life, isn't it? You know, We have a piece of time and we get to decorate it. Hopefully, in a way that future generations will exactly. look at it. That's great. Yeah, 
John, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. Absolutely fantastic conversation. I loved it. Awesome. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about the work John and his team do at Accenture Interactive's Song Sustainability Studio, check out the links in the notes that accompany the podcast. And if you've enjoyed this or any of the other episodes of the new PL, please do take a moment to rate us or review us. It all helps with our ratings and our rankings. And I invite you to join us again next week for the latest episode of the new PL to the point. So finally, I'm Paul, host of the new PL. Thank you once again for listening and have a great day.